Hey, babe, what you got there? This is a check from Carvana. I just sold my car to them. I went online and Carvana gave me an offer right away. Then they just picked up the car and gave me this. Well, that's a big check. Well, obviously you could put this towards your next car, or we could finally get that jacuzzi, or I could start taking tuba lessons, or I could quit my job and write my memoir. Or I can put it towards my next car with Carvana. Sorry, your check, not mine. Sell your car to Carvana. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get a real offer in seconds. Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. Yeah, I started to sort of have a think about that. And then I started building out the idea of, uh, you know, what if there was an online store where people can just buy stuff and, and have it sent directly into prison. And it sort of sat with me and then I came up with a whole whole bunch of other ideas. But then when I got ended up getting to, to minimum security, there was that whole thing and there was a different set of rules at Beechworth and, and it kind of brought up frustration again around property. Like my partner is trying to drop in tracksuit pants and these items those items some are getting knocked back some weeks some weeks they're not and it it ignited that for me again I was like there's got to be a solution to this great to be back with you here as always at least once a week I'm asked about the business model behind humans of purpose the answer is that as a social enterprise we rely on a handful of sponsored episodes each year to fund all our operations About one-fifth of our podcasts annually are paid for by sponsors and promotional partners, which enable the rest of the year's content to be run sponsorship-free and totally independent. Our books are now closed for 2022, but if you have a values-aligned product or service and want to reach our senior professional audience of Australian changemakers, of whom about 10,000 listeners tune in per month, we'd love to hear from you. Our wonderful supporter base here ensures we are regularly in the top 20 of the Australian management podcast charts. Not a bad result for an independent podcast competing against nearly 3 million other podcasts here and globally. This week, I'm thrilled to welcome Luke Anderson to the podcast. Luke is the founder of Fair Threads, a social enterprise that enables prison inmates access to the world of prison-compliant online retail clothing. Fair Threads is also planning for an ecosystem that provides pathways for ex-inmates to re-enter the workforce. This is a different sort of Humans of Purpose episode, where Luke essentially tells his whole life story, which is really important to understanding why he is building Fair Threads. It's a fascinating listen, and you'll mainly hear me marvelling at Luke's storytelling, as I'm sure you will too. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Luke as much as I did. I am very thrilled to have Luke with me here today. How are you, mate? Yeah, good. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. When I see you at this many conferences consecutively, uh, it makes me think that we're meant to be here together. Yeah, it feels feels a little bit that way. You're doing the circuit. Yeah, well, not necessarily intentionally. <laughs> I think that it sort of <laughs> fell in my lap with a couple of things that I've been doing recently, but yeah, definitely enjoying it. But certainly people taking an interest in the wonderful things you're doing, which is why you're here today, partially. Um I'd love to hear all about your journey as a starting point, um, and then we'll get into what you're doing today. Yeah, absolutely. No worries. Well, um, yeah, I was born down in Geelong. Uh, my my parents were relatively young. Uh, they'd, they'd only known each other for a matter of weeks before my mum fell pregnant with me. 
my mum and my dad both had some mental health issues from from trauma earlier in life and then also some some added trauma uh, after I was born and then uh, four years later after my sister was born also. So they kind of had an on-again, off-again relationship and it, it... Created and led to the most obvious of things of a pretty you know tumultuous home life. Yeah, uh, we grew up in a, a commission house, which was in Clifton Springs, uh, down on the Ballerine Peninsula, and it, it had its pros and its cons. Being that most of the commission housing in Geelong is out in the northern suburbs, mm-hmm. which uh, some people may be familiar with, but it had the the benefits of being around, you know, working class people, which might not have been the case had we been more so out in um, that 3214 postcode being Coronal Lane. Yeah. But then it was a, a fair amount more isolating, uh, which I've discovered a lot, you know, having discussions with other people and what their experiences were in the commission houses growing up mm. where they, they say a lot, you know, at least we had love, at least we were in it together. But I couldn't relate to a lot of people uh, that I went to school with or, you know, neighbours or people uh, in any sports clubs that I was involved with. You naturally felt different. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think, you know, there was a, a lack of resources for us as well, uh, particularly after my mum my and dad separated. My mum went into an even more deeply depressive state. She got that bad that there was days at a time where she she couldn't get out of bed yeah. and had to go to school you know hungry at times and it it sort of led to a, a situation where we ended up getting sponsored by the the Smith family yep. which which helped out quite a bit but it it sort of instilled a bit of resourcefulness in me which comes into play a bit further down the track uh we used to get delivered these these uh, bags of bread that hadn't been sold from the local bakeries ourselves and uh, other disadvantaged families in the area, and oftentimes that'd be uh, stale, you know, maybe no good. But uh, um, one of the the fondest memories of mine is quite sad to a lot of other people, but I look back back on it um, with with quite a lot of joys that I, I figured out that if I'd light a fire and I'd wrap the bread in foil or just put the bread straight into the fire and bring it back out and when I break it break it open it's like fresh bread again you know so yeah <laughs> it was it was actually you know it, it taught me a lot of really good life lessons and and when you compare your circumstances to a lot of other people around the world to to sort of have that as a major issue while well, some people might think that it's heartbreaking and such I yeah I'm actually I count myself quite fortunate to be able to have experienced that, and that's uh, a that's an amazing um, way to look at things. Yeah, it's given me the ability to have a lot of gratitude later on in life, and uh, to appreciate a lot of things that a lot of other people take for granted. But it's definitely taken me some time to get to that that point. There's a bit of relativism about the challenges we face in our lives and how they make us better prepared, or maybe indifferent to future challenges, do you feel that um, going through a lot early kind of put you in a place of resilience and ability to sort of not find things that other find other people might find hard as hard for you? Yeah, definitely. It, it, it definitely helped to put things into perspective. On the other side of the coin, it's created a lot of frustration mm-hmm. for me with people and, uh, you know, I, I, I might find a lot of 
a lot of their issues trivial or, you know, I give them basic answers like, oh, just don't do that and it's not going to be a problem and that, that can actually be harmful to, to relationships. So, yeah, I definitely have had to learn to be able to see things from other people's perspectives yep. and then be supportive of it. But uh, as far as, you know, in a work capacity, it's definitely been advantageous and, and just for being able to be present in the moment, uh, yeah, it's it's definitely been massive for my happiness too. I think even the way you talk about that, um, your childhood and growing up with that lens of, um, you know, deep understanding, reflection, gratitude for what's a very difficult upbringing is a real gift, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. And it's sort of, it, it speaks to me about how, you know, um, they say that, um, you know, um, only 10% of life is what happens to you. Uh, the other 90% is how you interpret that. Mm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For me, it's a little bit like that, you know. Yeah, you kind of mould your own reality. Yeah, and you you, you create a narrative. Yes, out of it for yourself, and uh, hopefully that takes you somewhere good. Yeah, for sure. Uh, after that, sort of, you know, the that really rocky few years after mum and dad separated, my mum found a new partner, and with that came uh, the start of some of the more stable years of our lives. Uh, my my mum ended up finding part-time employment and her new partner had full-time employment. Unfortunately, I already had some uh, pretty severe depression by that time and I still got my diary from when I was a little kid and I think I, I made my first uh, suicidal diary entries at the age of nine. Oh, man. Yeah. And that that was never addressed because I always had been quite a deep thinker and I would see the way uh, that people are dealing with things around me in that environment. There's quite a lot of stuff going on. So I'd internalise a lot of things and and just think that, you know, whatever everybody else has going on is more important than what I've got going on. Yeah, right. So you sort of diminished the the feeling, pushed the feelings right down. Yeah, absolutely. And, And then I sort of found that I would get attention and and what I perceived as love through achievement. So I, I uh, represented Geelong in baseball as a junior and I was a decent footy player as well. And it, it kind of reinforced this idea in my mind that I could I could get love and respect from people if I pushed really hard yeah. to achieve things yeah. rather than what... Uh, You're loved for what you do and what you achieve uh, rather than who you are inherently. Yeah, which is a, a very common problem yeah. from people of all kinds of backgrounds. Also a very functional adaptation that I, I know many high achievers have as part of their makeup. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And um, that that next four years from, from yeah, around... 12 to 16 or 13 to 16, uh, it, it really sort of helped me to start to see some kind of normality for the first time. I managed to get through high school. I completed year 12, uh, sort of limped <laughs> to the finish line. <laughs> I, I think that my my ATAR score was something like 47, so it really, really wasn't great. You but, got um, one though. I got, I got over the line, yep. which was fantastic. But just uh, in the summer holidays after completing year 12, uh, my mum's new partner uh, ended up sexually assaulting my sister, which threw things back into turmoil once again. 
And yeah, my, my sister fortunately it only happened that one time and she had the bravery to come straight into my bedroom the night that it did happen and I my immediate reaction was that I was going to, uh, you know, lash out in a violent manner but she fortunately talked me down and she said, look, I, I just want to get out of the house and then we went through the streets. Uh, yeah, it was, it was around about 2 o'clock in the morning and we went to a friend's house that lived nearby at the time to you know find refuge and then obviously call the police and the the friend's dad answered the door and he was being a bit standoffish we were trying to explain what was happening and it was weird about it but eventually left let us in and then that ended up uh going to going to court and he was convicted uh but the the dad of the the friend that um had answered the door that night well my, my friend ended up confiding in me that they had actually been a victim of uh, some horrendous sexual crimes at the hands of their own father. Of that guy? Yeah. So oh, my God. I ended up... What a mess. Yeah, my my mum and, and my sister moved away from Geelong and then I ended up uh, living with those people for a time. Gee. Uh, so that they confided in me and then I said, you have to go to the, the police about this. This is horrible. And, uh, yeah, so they ended up uh, addressing that. The, that. the dad ended up going to... Court uh, going to prison for like twelve years or something Jesus. like that. So it was like a high high end offending. You could yep. imagine if it's a sentence like that. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I would, I pretty much just spent from seventeen until twenty, really grappling with you know, I, I hadn't had any kind of stability. I didn't have any kind of self worth. I didn't have any kind of direction. It was all just around, uh, you know in and out of court in a supportive role, uh, but not knowing what I wanted to do with myself, not knowing how to give and receive love, not knowing how to ask for help. Yeah. That was for sure. And uh, in the, in that time, I, I ended up managing to secure an apprenticeship as an electrician, which coincided with the the breakdown of the, the friendship that I had with that person. And uh, I ended up homeless for a period of time and I, I ended up getting a car Fortunately, which I, I lived out of, and what I would do is I'd go to work. I'd, I'd spend all of my money on getting drunk on the weekend, mm. and then through the week I would just you know, go hungry, or you know, if I got to stay at a friend's house, I'd have dinner there. But uh, every luncheon and, and uh, smoke I break, I'd I'd tell my bosses that I'm I'm just going to go to the shops, even though I didn't have any money. I'm just going to go around the corner, and I'm going to get get something, like get a pie or whatever for smoker, and they go, yeah, no worries, but I'd just drive around the corner and I'd sit there in my car because the the hunger pains were easier to deal with than going to someone and asking for help. Oh, man. So eventually what it, it culminated in was I, I was working in um, an area called Belmont, which is in Geelong, and... Uh, McDonald's was running a $1 double beef and cheese promotion promotion at the time, which I was sort of, I was running off of them for a bit. And I I went to the McDonald's car park and I was like, I'll scrounge together some coins, I'll get a double beef and cheese and then get back to work. And I'd been rifling through all the the mess in my car and, you know, I got to 55 cents and 70 cents, 80 cents, 85 cents, ended up stalling at 95 cents before I had to go back to work. And... That was uh, like a pretty critical moment in my life because I just kind of gave up for about 
two minutes. I just thought, like, I, I hadn't believed in, in God, but then I started believing God and I thought he was there just to destroy my life because mm-hmm. that's that's all that seemed to have happened up until that point. But then I started to think about it and I kind of started laughing through my tears and just like, of course, it, it's going this way. This this is how this kind of stuff always goes because I had such a negative bias and then I started just getting kind of angry and going, you know what, no one's here to help me. No one's ever been here to help me. I've got to take things into my own hands and it's starting right now. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to get the 95 cents, I'm going to go through the McDonald's drive through order a double beef and cheese, hand over the change, they're probably just going to go, oh, you're five cents short. Then I'll look around for the five cents for about 10 seconds. I'll go, oh, don't worry about it. And then they'll drive me through. Yeah. So it's, again, that resourcefulness coming into play. Did that happen? Did you get the burger? I got the burger. Yeah. And then and I went, okay, that worked. And then, all right, now I'm going to start looking for any opportunity to get me out of this situation because I'm, I'm sick of this. This is a pathetic existence. I'm, I'm not having it anymore. And for me, I'd, I'd – um, because I'd been going out on the weekend all the time, my, my circle of influence was other people that used to go out on the town all the time. Yeah. And part of that is drugs. Like drugs. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, come my, my 21st birthday, I'd been completely anti-drugs because drugs had affected my family mm. um, previously. But on my 21st birthday, I tried speed, uh, which I saw why a lot of people are into the 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 party drug scene like with MDMA and, and cocaine and all those kinds of things. And in that I saw opportunity and I, I went back to the, the bloke that sold it to me and I said, hey, if I was to buy a bit more, how much could I get it for? And then I crunched the numbers yeah. and I'm like, oh, sweet, I could make 100 bucks, no dramas. Mm. And I did it. And then um, and then I went back again and then I and people, after they got some speed off of me, um, they asked about ecstasy and then I was like oh ecstasy okay I don't know anything about ecstasy pills so I'll go ask the guy again and then yeah no worries and then it just sort of snowballed from there it ended up uh, getting me into a position where I was able to eat every day it got me into a position where I had a bit of confidence and where that came from was that people were starting to want to talk to me and they were starting to want to hang around me oh, yeah, for the, all the wrong reasons. The position, the the powerful position of the uh, local drug dealer. Yeah, and, and this wasn't even, like at this stage, I had absolutely no power. Mm. It was literally just I had, yeah, for, what, for a what handful other people of needed. people, I had, you know, and this is only like five or six people, mm. or very quickly became like 10 or 20. Um, I, yeah, I had party drugs and they, that made them be really kind. Like it seemed like they were being kind to me and it felt like they loved me. So it was like, oh, this feels good and I'm, I'm respected and stuff like that. So it actually boosted my confidence and I, and I felt great. And, and then through that I started to do better at my full-time job and I ended up getting uh, an even better job. Uh, I was working up on the, the Westgate Bridge as a maintenance electrician, so my, my legitimate earnings increased and then so I ended up getting somewhere to live and then I got a better car. And while that had served me, the same mental health issues that I had from earlier in life and that had led to me uh, engaging in criminal behaviour, they didn't go away. Mm. And I just continued to go, well, the more I can do, the more money that I can make, 
the more people are going to love me and I'm, and I'm going to be the man. And then, you know, maybe other people will love me. Then it's going to attract the right kinds of people into my life. And mm. yeah, due, due to that perfect storm, I excelled at it and uh, yeah, things got quite out of hand over the, the years to come. It eventually led to being involved in an undercover investigation. Uh, just prior to my arrest, I, I met a girl. It uh, would have been about, it was about five months, six months prior to getting arrested. And so she, she was from uh, Cairns up in Queensland her family's from Geelong, but they'd moved up there and then she just recently moved back and she worked in one of the, the local bars and I um, I'd approached her when she was working at the bar, uh, hit things off, took her on a, a few dates, uh, but then she ended up finding out the the life that I led and she she stopped the relationship, but I really liked her because she, she hadn't known what I did, so I, I had for the first time in years, because things had escalated quite an amount and a lot of people knew me uh, in the local area. Uh, it was refreshing to have a, a just a genuine f- friendship with somebody that didn't know who I was and what I was doing, so it, was, it felt like they'd actually liked me for me. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, unfortunately they found out and then I said that I was going to, I was actually going to quit if I could pursue a romantic relationship with her and, she said, oh, yeah, we'll see sort of a thing. But that, that decision was taken out of my hands. I got, I got arrested uh, on the day before my 25th birthday, so it was March 16th, 2016. And that was at a time when you might have been considering stopping that stuff? Oh, no, I was I was definitely lying in saying that. I just thought that I could oh, yeah. hide it because yeah, I yeah. was uh, I was into the commercial trafficking yeah. scene by this stage. Yeah. So I'd, I'd moved back from the, the nightclub um, scene, uh, like I would still go out uh, and and engage in partying and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I was I was um, yeah more so dealing to dealers uh, by that by that stage. So I thought that I could hide it. Uh, but yeah, I I got arrested and I got told that I was charged with trafficking a large commercial quantity of MDMA and cocaine, and I didn't know exactly what that meant, but. All I got told by my lawyer over the phone is that there's two charges that carry a, um, a maximum term of life imprisonment in Victoria and you have to have exceptional circumstances to be able to get out on bail and that's murder and trafficking a large commercial quantity of any kind of drug. So that kind of puts things into perspective mm. as to how much trouble I was in and I genuinely didn't have any kind of visceral response because mm. I'd become so numb to everything uh, by that stage. Were you a heavy user also at that time? Uh, definitely with alcohol, definitely with cocaine and um, MDMA. Uh, I'd, I never had any involvement in the the, like the methamphetamine and, mm. and the heroin Which scene. is probably a very lucky thing, right? Yeah, well, for, for me there was... There was two elements to that. There was the the moral side of it, which I've got a different uh, view on, a different perception of, of the drug scene these days. But at the time, it was yeah. There's the moral side of it because you know you, if you see your, your typical ice user and your typical heroin user, I'd I'd grown up around like I'd seen plenty of heroin users. Yeah. Not ice was pretty new on the scene mm. at the time, but uh, it definitely has a, a lot more of a prolific. Uh, effect on people's lives than, than say, like yeah, an MDMA and, and weed and LSD and things yep. like that. Uh, but, yeah, I I had 
Sorry, I lost where, where I got up to there. Uh, so I think you said you, you went in the can. Um, so you got yeah, so, so, charged. Yeah, so I'd, um, yeah, I'd been charged with the the uh, trafficking in a large commercial yep. quantity of MDMA and cocaine. And then when, when I got told that, there was absolutely no visceral response. And I always had the approach with, with law enforcement that they were just a, a part of, like they were a risk. They weren't, you know, I, don't, I never have any, any, had any feelings of untoward. Uh, I So, you know, I, I knew that the people that arrested me were different to the ones that were holding me in custody. So, and there's nothing personal either way. They were just doing their job. So as such, I, I was always polite and courteous. And after about uh, three three weeks in the, the police cells, I I ended up getting pulled aside by one of the, the corrections officers and they said, hey, look, we know you're in a whole lot of trouble, but you've been polite, you've been, you know, made our jobs easier. So what we're going to do is you've got, you've got some letters of support and um, we're going we're gonna to let you read them, but we're not allowed to do this. So you get 10 minutes and then we're going to have to take them back. All right. And I said, yeah, no worries. And then they, they did that. They, they handed me these letters and I'm thinking that it's like going to be the boys and, um, you know, all the, the people that I've been knocking about with for the, the years before that, that had made me feel like I was loved and respected and everything. But uh, it actually ended up being, you know, I'll, I'll preface this with I hadn't spoken to my family in any kind of meaningful capacity probably since my mum had moved away mm. by this point, uh, which had been sort of five or six years. And it ended up being my mum, my sister, my nana, my dad, my stepmum, uh, and the girl that had uh, told me to get stuffed, <laughs> <laughs> um, all expressing their concern and talking about, you know, oh, we know that you're a good person deep down. We don't know what's happened, but we're just really worried about you and, and we're here to support you. And I, um, I, I really, truly broke down for the first time in a, in a number of years at well, that point. Were you thinking at the time, why would they do that? Show me those letters of support, what, what they've been thinking? Yeah, yeah. It, it completely, it, it just completely shocked me. So I didn't, I, I couldn't really even comprehend it. Yeah, it was, there was definitely confusion around it. You think they were trying to um, kind of give you some hope? Yeah, I, I think that it it was definitely just that that family element where while I'd been distant, there was there was always from their part there there was always the care factor. But because of the way things had had fallen for me, uh, you know, they they weren't able to be there to be a support, and I, I was so um, isolated and. Um, steadfast in in the way that my thought processes worked, that, that I just wasn't accessible to my family for sure. So, yeah, I, I started to have this overflow of emotion, obviously, and, and then I started to think, you know, like I just three weeks ago I got told that I'm being charged with large commercial drug trafficking, and, and I felt nothing. I genuinely felt nothing, and then that thought sat with me, and I was like, what? What is wrong with a person to not be scared and not care mm. that, that that's 
potentially happening. And in reality, I was never in danger of getting a, a life sentence. But if if I had have gone down for large commercial trafficking, I definitely would have got the ten or twelve years. And um, I, I made a, a choice in that moment that I'm I'm not sure what it looks like, but I'm going to make myself a person that does care about losing years of their life and and does have things on the outside that, that do genuinely mean something to them. So I ended up uh, getting visits from a lot of my family that I hadn't seen. So the, the next time that they saw me after after years was in an orange jumpsuit at yep. the Melbourne Assessment Prison mm. and I had to... Uh, it, was, it was quite stern with my dad. He was just completely confused. And I, I, actually in that first visit with my dad, I, I said to him, I'm, I'm going to turn this around into a positive. I'm gonna, they're going to make a movie out of me one day. And he walked out of there with my sister going, he's lost his mind. He's, he's gone, like, <laughs> which I don't blame him. I, I totally understand <laughs> it. But I was that committed from, from early on to, to changing my, my worldview and, and um, have, living a happier and healthier life. Um, yeah, so that's a, that's a really strong response, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think it, it definitely is and it, it comes down to that, those earlier experiences where because I've had to, to adapt very quickly because there's been a lot of situations where all of a sudden my world's been completely flipped on its head. Yep. I just there's, there's absolutely no value in sitting there and licking my wounds yep. and going, oh, hopefully someone comes and saves me. It's just So like, that's your resourcefulness that you kind of alluded to earlier yeah. kind of applied to that situation. You, you flip it immediately. Yeah, and the acceptance of circumstances yep. and then just starting to look for the, the opportunities rather than sitting there and going, oh, I'm stuffed because, yeah, I've been programmed to do, to do that my whole life, like with, with um, the stuff happening with my sister moving away and then, uh, going you know, going into homelessness, my, my parents separating. It, there's a bunch of other stuff in between mm. that where that that's been the case. But uh, yeah, it, it definitely served me for good when when I did go to prison. So where does that sort of uh, positive mentality lead you? So it it started with a, a conversation with the girl that I'd been talking to prior to prior to prison. She actually came and visited me at the Melbourne Assessment Prison and and. I ended up entering some conversations with her about, uh, you know, I'm very grateful for her support and, um, you know, is that something that that could flourish in this kind of environment? doesn't really seem like it, but we'll see. But we just kept talking for a bit and uh, and as time went on, I sort of said, look, if, if you do want to pursue a relationship with me, uh, I want to just say that I've been a lost little boy my whole life, not not having any sense of direction. But if you do stick by me and you do support me, I'll become the man that you deserve. And she agreed to that that commitment. And a quick flash forward, I've actually uh, ended up marrying her, and and we've got a kid I together. I saw the ring, mate. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was hoping that turned out to be the narrative. Yes, it is. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> congratulations. Um, thank you very much. So that was the first time that I actually had any real solid positive goal in my life. So I'd, I didn't know what that meant. I, I'd committed to it, but then I went, oh, "Shit, no. what does this yeah, mean? What now? What have I got what, myself into?" <laughs> yeah, after oh, all right, here's the lofty goal, and now yeah. I've got to work backwards. Yeah. and uh, yeah, I, I sort of just 
threw myself into it. I, I applied a, a mentality of, you know, I'd, in prison there's there's a bunch of really talented people, you know, so but they're not well-rounded people. Yeah. And I wanted to become a well-rounded person. Yep. So you'll see some of the fittest blokes that you've ever seen in your life. In yeah, prison. a lot of push-ups. A lot of push-ups, that kind of thing. <laughs> I'm just telling you what of, I've seen in all yeah. these series and whatnot. And it's real. Is it real? Yeah, yeah, okay. heaps, heaps of really – A lot of people really, in the yard bench pressing and – Yeah, sort of, that kind of stuff, muscle-ups, yeah. all the, all that kind of stuff. Yep. And, um, you know, I was, I'd been fit before. I'd done a lot of running uh, but I'd I'd never been you know like that CrossFit sort of a sort of a fit. So I'm yep. like, you know I'm going to go up and I'm going to leverage their knowledge, but then I'm not going to take relationship advice from them, and I'm not going to take business <laughs> advice from yeah, these it's people. It's probably quite you know? good to just be judicious about where you get your advice in prison. Yeah, and then uh, I and then you know there, there was people that were in there for for tax fraud. Uh, you know, very wealthy business people. Good place to get accounting advice, but not breaking the law advice. Yes, correct. So mm-hmm. I, I leveraged knowledge off of you know a lot of wealthy business people that were in prison. Uh, I, I observed people that had long-standing rela- relationships while they were in prison. They'd maintained them. I leveraged their knowledge around relationships, and I, I sort of started to formulate this idea of of what it would look like to to bring all of these things together and understand that you can't. Uh, overachieve in one area without it coming at a cost of another area. So if I put all of those together and I and I, I just kind of balanced them, then that's probably what the the man that that my wife deserves. So you went about trying to without having any knowledge of what, of what you wanted to become. Um, you made the commitment to become you know the right man for this woman who's yes. now your wife. Yep. And then you almost reverse engineered what does it mean to be the complete – you had to solve that question for yourself. Yeah, yeah. And then you you kind of – it sounds like you took it as the right man is the complete man. Yeah, yeah. With with the acceptance, though, that it's uh, it's maybe instead of being 100% in all these areas, yeah. it's maybe 80% yeah, yeah, in all these areas. Yeah, of course. No, no one but is yes. perfect on every dimension. Yeah, absolutely. No, but, um, definitely. So how did you – like let's get to the part where you pull those learnings and insights together and um, tell us what happens next. Yeah, so I I sort of just followed a, a nice path through, through prison in the sense that I was uh, incident-free uh, I, I managed to end up getting to minimum security, get involved in some community programs. But around the time, so I, I had to spend the first half of my sentence in maximum and medium because I'd been involved in organised crime. Yeah. So if I had have had not have been in, involved in organised crime, then I wouldn't. Um, I would have been able to go to minimum security a bit earlier. But I'm actually quite fortunate. I stayed in you know, in uh, medium and maximum for longer because it gave me appreciation for the, the minimum stuff. But I also came up with this idea through frustration uh, while I was at Marganite Correctional Centre. Uh, my partner had tried to drop in some some property one week and had been successful and then the next week they tried to drop in the same stuff. It was a different a different guard and they, they knocked it back. And I was like, this, this is just ridiculous. Like why... Do they not have something a lot simpler? Like it, it's you know, there's, the guard is just doing their job, so they don't want to knock people back. It's an uncomfortable situation, but they're just doing what they're paid to do. Mm. And then you get people on the other other side of the fence that are wanting to visit 
um, people in prison. So there's two two queues, one to drop in property and then you go line up to go into your visits. And you're lining up and you're just trying to drop in some socks and jocks and shorts and things. And then you're getting knocked back on like minor technicalities like, oh, it's got a pocket sewn into it. No, you can't have that. You can't have a drawstring on your shorts. You can't have a V. Oh, so there's all these rules around the clothes yeah. for prison. But it's different from, from prison to prison as really? well. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's uh, wild. It's really strange. So I was like, what? why isn't there an a, a better way? Why so hold on. In, in min security, um, it's not orange jumpsuits. You can wear normal stuff. No, so it's – Throughout the system, so Melbourne Assessment Prison is that you got to go in jumpsuits yep. into the visits. Yep. Uh, but when yeah, when you're in any of the environments, you wear prison greens, so you can. It's like green tracksuit, green jumper, green shirts. You're allowed to wear white shirts, black shorts, and then yeah, you got your socks and jocks and whatever. Yeah. Um, but it, yeah, it's pretty basic. Um, so yeah, I started to question that, like, why why isn't it simple? And then I started to like, I had a, a real big interest in in business obviously I was entrepreneurially yeah. inclined <laughs> prior to prison yeah do, but, do you have the internet in there or like nah, yeah so nah, how do no you prison. I wonder how I'd you not, get curious and do a research phase when you don't have the internet yeah it's uh it's difficult it, it was just more so about understanding technologies that were available from people that recently come into prison so okay. leverage that okay. but then there's like TAFE education that you can do and the teachers can print off some some stuff for you oh, and nice. bring it in, nice. Which is like that's they they don't necessarily find the right information and yeah, but it's something. It, but it's it's yeah. definitely something you can get started doing that for sure. So yeah, I started to sort of have a think about that, and then I started building out the idea of uh, you know what if there was an online store where people can just buy stuff and and have it sent directly into prisons that, that's comprised of stuff that you know will get into all the prisons. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely, and. And it sort of sat with me, and then I came up with a whole whole bunch of other ideas. But then, when I got ended up getting to to minimum security, there was that whole thing. There was a different set of rules at Beechworth, and and it kind of brought up frustration again around property. Like my partner is trying to drop in tracksuit pants and these items, those items. Some are getting knocked back some weeks, some weeks they're not, and I just, it, it ignited that for me again. I was like, "There's got to be a solution to this." So I, I was like, I'm, go, I'm going to pursue this. So I'm going to. I, pr- I ended up printing up a, uh, a little data sheet, and I started taking information from people. I copped a lot of shit for that from walking from unit to unit with a clipboard, like because like everyone's like, what are, what are you? A, what are you a screw? Like are you a prison officer? I'm just trying to make a living here. I'm collecting data to make a business. So I started asking people, how often do you get things dropped in? How much? Um, do you get dropped in? What's the typical items that you get dropped in? Yeah, I collected a whole whole bunch of data and then, I, um, yeah, I started to build out a, an idea around that. And then I got uh, my best mate just prior to to getting out of prison. I got him to make me an email address, and he he typed up this business case and he sent it through to Vacro with my name, leaving out that I was still in prison. But, hey, here's this business idea that I've got. I'd love to come up and, and meet with you and have a chat. And, uh, yeah, the CEO of Vacro was like, oh, this is really interesting. love to, to talk with you. And Just explain what Vacro is. Uh, so they, they help a lot with uh, – they're a not-for-profit that help a lot with the reintegration of inmates back into society. Right. And, yeah, I, I got uh, a meeting – 
pro- so it was prior to my release, but I already had a meeting, so I was on my <laughs> intensive parole. I went and bought a nice shirt and and some pants. So and, how long were you in for? Because you said you got a pretty hefty sentence, but yeah, so it ended up being. Uh, a four and a half year yep. sentence, of which I served three years. Okay. So then I had a, a parole period of one and a half sure. years. Yeah. So, so you go straight out into a meeting with the CEO of Acro. Yeah, yeah. That was um that was pretty crazy. So I I um I was very careful about like I, I didn't want to say too much to like my parole officer and stuff about this is what I want to achieve and stuff because uh, this guy He's definitely he's going back to jail. Like <laughs> yeah. he's, he's going to get his heart broken yeah. and he's going to go back to crime. Yeah. So I was like to my parole officer and stuff, I was like, I, I'm just wanting to turn my life around and I'm wanting to get involved. I got involved with um, like community, the community house uh, housing uh, network in Geelong. And um, at the same time, yeah, I had this uh, meeting with Vacro with lined up. I went and I discussed the concept and I ended up, bringing it into that we could actually uh, employ people that are coming out of prison, get them jobs, make make it a lot easier for, for people coming home. And uh, that for me, by the way, is the genius part of what you've done. Yeah, that that's definitely the... the this, that's the silver thread. Yeah, absolutely. That's the, that's the main focus of, yep. the, of the concept. So mm. I initially had called it Crim Threads and... It's um, kind of cool. It, yeah, that, I thought that that was a much cooler name yeah, than Fair Threads. But well, <laughs> you know, if you're going to be in the not-for-profit social enterprise space, yeah. fair, fair Threads is much better. Yeah, but Crim sense. Threads is pretty good. The Crim Threads would almost be like a great record label for rappers or something. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah, well, yeah. I'll, Someone I'll else still... can pick that up or maybe you'll trademark it. Yeah, well, there's, I think there's a lot of versatility in <laughs> yeah. the space that I'm, um, that I'm moving into. So, yep. yeah, I'm speaking to my my lawyer tomorrow, so I'll probably be moving to trademark that. But, yeah, I, I got the uh, the meeting with uh, Vacro and I said to them, look, look, this is the idea that I've got and if you guys help me out, then, yeah, I'm, I'm wanting to collaborate with you down the track, help build your capacity because, you know, this this idea, there's a, there's a lot of stuff that we could do with it. And they're like, oh, that, yeah, that sounds really good. We can get you an introduction into um, some of the executives at Corrections and I'm going... That sounds good, and they're like, "How, how did you come up with this? This, this like, this is like, so they've, they've already made the commitment to me, and then at the end of it, like, just as I was about to leave, they're like, yeah, we've got to ask, how'd you, how'd you come up with it? And I said, like, "Well, I actually just got out of prison eight weeks ago, and they kind of they had nearly had to pick their jaws up off." off yeah, the yeah, I'm go, sure they they would have just loved it. They would have loved it. Yeah, yeah, they, they would they, not have been able to believe it, and they would have been in love with it at the same time. Yeah, the, uh, it's like the ultimate like exciting case study of reform and, you know, like Definitely. getting back in the game. I think if I put my my mind um, in in their position, I would definitely would have loved the idea. I would have loved the opportunity, but I also would have been worried about the fact that I'd only been out of prison for eight yeah, weeks. So I hadn't proven Definitely some yet. risk there. Definitely yeah. some risk. So, uh, I yeah, I kind of... Yeah, I got I got traction from from correction. So I got uh, correspondence from a fellow named Andrew Reaper, and uh, then eventually the general manager of Prison Industries, Tony Lay. And then yeah, the the conversation started. So that that would be going back around about three and a half years, and they they, they ended up saying, look, we're going to support this idea. We're going to help you to develop it because there's a whole lot of red tape and there's a whole lot of issues that we're going to have to work through. But we like the idea. And uh, we like the story, so let, let's start talking. So, did they invest, or what was the arrangement? So, it's it's been 
a, a really long road of having, having again, that acceptance that I needed to get myself personally into a position where I had community trust. Yes, sure. Uh, so I wasn't early on. Yeah, I definitely wasn't pushing the bill. I, I got involved in that that community housing and I started talking to to people, uh, you know, that that had been affected by, you know, the the correction system. Yep. Maybe they had kids that were that were having brushes with the law or mm. maybe they had been involved in it and sort of just saying, Hey, look at me, look at what I'm doing. At that time I, I had managed to secure employment as yep. well. Um, what did you do after prison? So I went back to my old employer that I was with before I got arrested, which was G-Force mm. Staffing Solutions. And, I, yeah, I went in there and I said, hey, look, I've, I've, and I've been on holidays for three years. I didn't know where. They said, where have you been? I said, I'm going to be completely honest. I've been in prison and I was in a really, really rough place, but I've committed myself to turning my life around and doing better. And I understand if you're not in the position to be able to help me, but if you do give me the chance, I will... I'll give it my all, um, but also letting you know that I'm going to have to go to your own screenings and, and things like this. <laughs> and uh, fortunately, they were they they could feel that I was genuine and, yep. uh, and I really wanted to give it a go. So yeah, they they gave me a shot, and I ended up yeah, getting getting onto um, the construction site down down in um, Ocean Grove. I, Funnily enough, on uh, PFD Foods, uh, they got they got a new distribution center out in Lara. Started out there, so yeah, I started to around about that you know six month mark of being home. I started to be able to put myself into a position where I'm like, okay, I'm I'm maybe able to start earning claiming, trust. Yeah, yeah, claiming that I could be a leader. Yep. Not saying that I'm a leader, yep. but saying like maybe I could be. And uh, there was this community leadership program that that came up and my name got put forward for it and then I was successful. Which one was that? Uh, so the, the community leadership program that's run by the City of Greater Geelong. Fantastic. So it's it's around how to engage with, like, with council, like where, where responsibilities lie for, like, federal, state and uh, – federal and state government and then and council. Yeah, nice. How to engage with people for grants and how to – you know, network and, and things like that. Mm. And, um, yeah, that, that was pretty valuable to me in, like, obviously in that um, fundamental learning level with the, the government and things and, and finding where your passions lie. But then also the facilitator heard about my story and she was uh, friends with this, uh, the owners of this production company that uh, they were like, oh, we want to do this documentary on positive psychology. And she scouted me for that. She's like, oh, you need to apply for this documentary. And then I went in, I went up uh, to, I think it was RMIT, and I did my interview, and then I was successful in that. Who's, who ran that doco? Uh, so they're called Beyond Edge. Uh, the documentary is called How to Thrive, and the, the premiere in Melbourne is uh, this this. Thursday, so tomorrow it's to yeah. So we're recording in the second week of October. Yeah, so, so it's the will it be the sixteenth something of, like that? Yeah, sixteenth of October. This will come out um, probably a few weeks after that, but that's exciting. So people will be able to go see it. Yeah, yeah. So it's in cinemas. Uh, yeah. So, so now, so not you're not just a civic leader; you're also a movie star. And you didn't mention that earlier. <laughs> yeah, I, I hadn't mentioned that just yet. You but should probably put that in the uh, <laughs> cliff notes. That's a bit yeah. of an achievement. Yeah, I probably should, but it's um. A positive it, psychology role model, come movie star. Yeah, yeah. I'd, well, hopefully that 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 um, I can put that on my resume. You'll be on IMDb. Can look you up. 
Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. I'm not 100% sure. I've got to find out these things. But it was um, – We need to get you an agent. Oh, yeah, well, if you know a good one, if you want to be my agent, <laughs> well, I'm looking maybe, for one. Maybe one of the listeners will be an agent and they'll reach out. Yeah, sweet. They should definitely on LinkedIn if they want to catch me. <laughs> but it, it, it comes into the story because the importance for me is that while that, that's been a fantastic experience and and it, it, it came at a very important time in my life uh, because the, the positive psychology tools that I was given by being in that in that documentary were were really important because I had had come home from prison and I had just completely wiped most of um, my social circles out of my life because I needed to yep. if I was going to maintain meaningful change. And that just completely isolated me. So I didn't have any friends. I, like even, even now I'm still struggling with making friends yeah. because uh, like there's a, a few things coming together for me. It's like my, my personal life, uh, you know, people in my family and stuff are still struggling with mental health. So yeah. I'm maybe on a different level to them. Yeah. So it's hard to have meaningful conversation then in. Well, how, how's your, so are you saying that the positive psych stuff helped you with your mental health as well? Yeah, yeah. I, I struggled a lot like a year probably a year after I came home, it came to a point where it was like, all right, well, I'm doing all of the right things and I'm ticking all these boxes. I'm doing this community mm. leadership program. Yeah. I've got corrections in, like having conversation with it, like it's unheard of. Yeah. Uh, on on paper. Sold I'm on paper, but still it. struggling a bit inside. Struggling massively yeah. because now it's like oh, everything is, it should be right. Yeah. I've got You a, should feel good partner. inside. Yeah, I'm yeah. supported by... Like I, I started to mend bridges with my family. I was fully supported by my wife's family, and um, and yeah, still I was just absolutely tormented. And yeah, it, it it gave me the tools to be able to really actually start to give and receive love and be comfortable with with uh, receiving help. So that that was fantastic. But then also to be able to. Um, put that rubber stamp on the commitment to to my self improvement. It it helped with developing the story around who I am and what I want to achieve when when I am engaging in conversation. Well, when I was engaging in conversations with corrections and and any other kind of service providers that that I'd want to uh, partner with down the track. So COVID hit uh, around that time. So it was right at the start of filming of the of the How to Thrive documentary and it it sort of put a halt on things with corrections because it was like, all right, this concept's fantastic but we've got no idea what yeah, things are going to look like. it's all about COVID now for the next pandemic. three years. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So while there were some conversations along the way and I got to, um, yeah, got to get in some pretty cool circles and, and uh you know, discuss the concept with people. It really slowed things down for you know, a good two years yep. at least. But I, I consider that uh, quite fortunate because I think that it really helped with yeah, me sort of challenging how ready I was to to go in into that sort of a yep. situation. I think that 
there's a chance that I could have rushed things and I could have got yeah. caught up in the whirlwind. So I was thinking that. It's very interesting how you managed to reframe everything that maybe other people would consider to be an unfortunate roadblock into a positive that yeah. actually helped you. It's, um, that is something that I think we all could do and should do more. Yeah, I hope I don't end up getting perceived as one of those sickeningly positive people that you just don't want to hang around with because I'm always looking for their sunny side. (laughs) No, look, I know people like that and I can't be around them too long. I I wouldn't put you in that category. All right, fantastic. Yeah, you're doing good. Yes, sweet. And so what ends up happening? So, yeah, I guess we can kind of... um, Where are we now? Yeah, fast forward to pretty much where we're at now and come the end of COVID, I... I start, started to uh, come out of my bubble a little bit more. I, I, I ended up uh, finishing up with GeForce at the, at the start of COVID and starting a, an electrical business, just a small family business with my, my wife and her brother. Oh, terrific. So that helped me to also sort of cut my teeth in a in a business Some more realm. legit entrepreneurship, eh? Yeah, yeah. So, and I <laughs> thought it's, it's kind of... Low hanging fruit yep. there. Uh, it's it's a pretty basic business, but I can at least learn the yeah. ins and outs of yeah. it. It it you know, um, my brother in law John, he wasn't happy with where he was at at the time, so I presented an opportunity for him. Yeah, and um, yeah, so I was like, all right, well, seems kind of low risk, and then COVID hit, so that was <laughs> then it made it kind of high risk. But um, yeah, we we you know survived through that, and um, and it again, it sort of added to that that trust factor. But yeah, got got to where I'm at today. I I ended up um, finishing up with the the doco, and I started to really go. All right, I'm going to invest a lot more time and energy into into this uh, to fair, fair threads, threads. concept. Yep. Yeah, so I got the feedback from from corrections that you know we. Crim has negative connotations attached mm, to it. They mm. said so. We need to come up with a different <laughs> different name. I was like, all right. Well, how about Fair Threads? And yeah, that that, that must have got a much better response. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, excuse me. Um, yeah. So I started to yeah have some some conversations with Correction, saying like, look, here's the gaps. So I'm going to have issues with supply chain uh, for the for. And the initial um, business model to be viable, I'm I'm going to have to get some pretty competitively priced clothing because if if people are going to want to um, going to if I'm going to want people to use this concept, then it needs to be affordable as well as accessible, but it can't be low quality. Yeah. Uh, so I ended up getting introduced to a fellow Sean Reardon, who used to be. Uh, the TYC, the CMFU, and he's been involved in corrections now. And then he involved me, uh, he, he introduced me to a fella in Cottonon. I, I was going to guess Cottonon because I know that they've got HQ in Geelong. Yeah, so. yeah. So they were, um, yeah, they were pretty excited about the concept when I first spoke with them. And, um, yeah, that, you know, I've been coming back and forth with them for, for a little while. But, uh, it sort of then my partner got pregnant, so then I had to deal with all of that. But yeah, it started entering conversations with a few other organisations because I, I became um, less time poor, so I was able to give it a bit more um, time and energy into into Fairthread. So then I, I was linked in with um, uh, Mark Watt at Social Engine as well, and just starting to have conversations around what. 
what the distribution of the goods could look like and what, yeah, what the model can look like and um, how we're going to make it most effective for people, particularly in that, you know, that transitional employment pathway. Mm. So I I ended up uh, sort of having, yeah, a couple, couple of major breakthroughs around, around the model when I probably most recently when I went up to the Social Enterprise World Forum. That's where I met you. Yes, yeah. Very is. briefly, actually. Yeah, very briefly. I reckon I was leaving and I was like, g'day, how are you? Um, what do you do? And, <laughs> and you were like, I've been in prison and now I run a great social enterprise that helps people in yeah. prison. <laughs> yeah. And I just thought, oh, well, we need to have a chat. Yeah, it sounds weird. <laughs> it was very, <laughs> sounds like my kind of conversation. Yeah. Uh, sorry, go on. No, that's all right. Uh so yeah, it's it's been around like the the main difficulty as to um, what sort of stalled things for a bit was around the model and what's going to be acceptable and attractive to both you know uh, balancing those you know the the corrections Victoria expectations community expectations and the expectations of of the people that are going through the system. So yep. where I've ended up landing is that there's going to be the the for-profit social enterprise that will be certified uh, and then not-for-profit structure that runs alongside it. So the the social enterprise will be involved in the, you know, the sale and distribution of clothing. Mm-hmm. So with the, that core focus around the online store initially for the corrections-based stuff, but then doing a streetwear apparel um brand alongside it so leveraging obviously there's a really strong story and brand um around fair threads there so to have that social impact um focus for a streetwear brand is it kind of just makes sense makes a lot of sense uh and then the the um other part of the social enterprise is that 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 profit will generate revenue for the the not-for-profit which will develop and deliver uh uh, programs for people involved in the correction system, yeah. and it's, it's, it works perfectly. It, yeah, it, fit, it fits the social enterprise model incredibly well. I mean, I hear a lot of people give me um, like they come up with something, and it's just a really bad fit for a social enterprise model. Yeah, this is not that. Yeah, no, this fits nicely. Yeah, it does make a whole lot of sense. So, and you've got in your corner corrections, yes. uh, cotton on, um, vacro community. Yeah, yeah, and then um, it, there's going to be a whole lot more conversations in the in the next couple of weeks with other people that I can potentially partner with because I think that it's really, really important um, to to recognise that when when you are a social enterprise, it's really, really easy to put pressure on yourself to try and be all encompassing. Yeah, but there's probably other organisations out there that can do those fringe things that you're trying to do a lot better than than what you're doing them and then you can leverage one another's uh, networks. So I'm going to concentrate on the clothing and I'm going to concentrate on the the mentorship of people coming through um, from prison and the the programs but I'm really, really keen and interested to to link in with other social enterprises at the moment to see how I can better support the people in my own structure but then also being a, a streetwear brand I'm sure that there's a whole lot of fantastic creative things that I could do um, yeah by 
collaboration with other social enterprises to, to generate more social change. Yeah, that's fantastic. And maybe that's a good call out for any listeners who are keen to get involved. It's probably, you know, potential partners out there, potential funders out there, potential collaborators. So mm, definitely sure. put that call out if yeah. that would suit you. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That, that definitely would have, um, yeah, been my call to action. Would yeah. Be, yeah, contact me, please, and yeah. start, start a conversation. Yeah. Um, I think that it's definitely not around just the the funding and like the stuff directly um, related to me. I think that I'm I'm keen to have a, a lot of conversations with other people that are interesting interested in just getting involved in the space. Yeah, and I think that's the right way to approach it. You know, um, there's an old adage: um, if you want funding, ask for advice. If you want advice, ask for funding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, just remember that in all your conversations. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So have you launched anything yet or this is the still the kind of pre-launch phase? This is this is like right before I hit the button pre-launch phase. Oh really? So yeah, it's it's super, super close. So um, after speaking with uh, Minta Allison, uh, which will be tomorrow, I'll get the not for profit structure set up and then uh, that so the not not for profit and the, the streetwear will start prior to anything starting within corrections. Uh, so fair threads um, will be a real thing very soon. Yeah, very, very Probably sure. by the time this airs, actually, in a few weeks. Oh, yeah, I'd be banking on that. Would there be a website up? Yes. Yeah, Fantastic. there will be. And, uh, the, yeah, the fair threads pathway stuff, which is around the, the delivery of the, the program. So that I've already filmed some pilots uh, called If You Knew, which is following this, uh, the stories of a few people that have come out of prison had had successful uh you know, reintegration pathways like myself and then breaking it down to find what principles each of them had in common. That is a fantastic idea. Yeah, to create – it's so that I'm going to be able to create some some practical tools and like an interactive learning portal that could be delivered in into people uh, in prison to sort of help them break down the biases that they may have and, and, you know, sort of stop the excuses as well that some people sort of – create for themselves, but then also on the other side of the fence, using the same content to draw out some some stuff around um, empathy and understanding for for staff members because there's a there's a major issue with with uh, corrections having staff members that come into the job and they have a, a genuine interest and want to help people. It's not this whole thing that they've got this punitive mindset and they, they just want to punish people. Yeah. No, there's um, a, a fantastic example that I'll give to, to back up what I'm about to say is that there's been three uh, staff members that I had come across while I was in prison that I've seen walking down the street and I've walked up to them to thank them because they treated me just like an ordinary human being and, and I really did appreciate that. And every one of those ones that I thought was worthy of giving thanks to had since left corrections because because they got burnt out. Oh, that's really <clears> interesting. So um, they call that um, empathy fatigue or something, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh, it's very common in caregiving. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, like, you, if if I can develop the tools for them to to have a better understanding around what they can be doing to, you know, what, what the right kind of interactions are to have with people to better set them up for success. Or not to burn out. Maybe there's some things um, that you drew from your positive psychology experiences that could be beneficial for that space. Definitely. Well, yeah. that, that's um, what else I was going to say is with around boundaries. Mm. There's people that are prepared to, to start 
doing better and there's people that aren't. It's okay to to not put in as much time and effort into those people that you very clearly know aren't going to to you know do it justice and yeah. and start to turn their lives. Yes, around. yeah. So yeah, you you really don't want to lose those people in correction because they they can you can have somebody that's on a knife's edge. They they could go one way or the other, and the interactions that they have with those those um, empathetic and caring uh, staff members can really can be the difference, especially when they don't have the support networks outside of prison. So, yeah, that 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 really is a, a major passion for me and I think that there's a there's a lot of stuff that I can do around that content, even like with youth and uh, yeah, people that are involved in corrections in, at all kinds of levels. I think that it would be absolutely massive. So, yeah, for, the more support that we can get, uh, the better um, because – yeah, I've, I've thought about this very carefully. I've spent a, a hell of a lot of time around, yeah, the trust factor and getting myself in a fantastic position. And, yeah, it's it's really exciting to now be at the point where I'm like, all right, I'm ready to go and, and I just want to start to make some change. Mate, fantastic being with you and what a story and what, an, what a journey. And um, the fact that you've ended up where you have is just testament to your mindset, I think, and the way you've gone about it. So well done. Um, how can people get in touch with you and uh, connect and learn a bit more about your work? Yeah, so at the moment there's a, a real shitty WordPress site, fairthreads.com.au. Uh, if you <laughs> it's want, better than no website. It's better than no website, but it's got a, a contact email down there if you wanted to get in contact with me. It's also got, a, you know, the, like the little elevator pitch 90-second summary video of the need. concept yeah, you so you can read up and, and have a bit of a look at that. Uh, otherwise, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn as well, um, as well as the Fairthreads uh, LinkedIn page. Too. And um, how many more conferences have you got in you or are you fatigued from that? Uh, I'm trying not to look at the, the diary at the moment. <laughs> I, I've said that I'm probably going to sleep for all of next week and then I'll start thinking about the conferences and speaking. Do you, do you find the, um, the networking thing mentally exhausting? Uh, I think that I'm one of these, like, the, is it a extrovert where you sort yeah. of gain energy from it. You get energy from, from, it. from it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm just, you seem pretty jacked at the social enterprise world forum. That's what I was going to say. Like yeah. you seem to be in the zone. Definitely, yeah. I was uh, I was buzzing about it. I definitely do like meeting new people and or particularly the social enterprise world forum where it was – They're good folk, aren't they, the social enterprise? It place. was so different. It was yeah. so weird going to the, the – um, If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two? If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.